0: Good morning. Glad to be back with you this morning. We are finishing the book of Philippians today. So if you've got a Bible, get over to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 10 through 23. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. Uh, Some of you know that before I became a pastor, I went through a four-year graduate school program at Dallas Seminary up in Dallas and uh, enjoyed my time there, but found it to be expensive as well. And so uh, every semester I would sort of wait with fear and trepidation for that tuition bill to come to my box on campus. And I'd open it up and see what the damage was going to be, $4,000, $5,000 a semester, whatever. Not terribly expensive maybe compared to some grad programs, but more than I usually had in my pocket at the time. And uh, one semester, I went to my box, I grabbed that tuition bill, opened it up, and I was surprised to find, pleasantly surprised, to find that the bill was smaller than I expected. In fact, much smaller. Uh, it was only in the range of maybe five or $600. I thought, this is fantastic. And as I scanned the itemized bill, I realized that they had credited me with a $3,500 scholarship. Now, I'll be honest, as soon as I saw it, I knew it was a mistake uh, because I had applied for a scholarship and I had received a letter saying, you don't get a scholarship. So as soon as I saw it, I knew it was some kind of an error. So I, I grabbed the letter and I started to walk over toward the financial aid office to tell them they had made a mistake. But a funny thing began to happen in my mind while I was on the way to the financial aid office. I started to have these thoughts like, maybe it's not a mistake. Maybe they changed their mind. Maybe they realized the exceptional value I am as a student and decided to contribute to my education. Or I thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't turn it in. Maybe this is God's way of providing for me. And it would be a a lack of faith to go back and turn in the money. Or maybe this is like great expectations. And I have an anonymous benefactor who noticed me and decided to give me the $3,500. But of course, I knew none of that was actually true. So I walked into the financial aid office. I told them it was an error. They said, thank you. They removed the scholarship from my account and gave it to the person to whom it belonged. I didn't even get a reward for turning it in. I was a little a little bitter about that. And I went on my way And on the one hand, I thought, okay, I did the right thing. And I had a certain sense of feeling good about doing the right thing. But if I'm honest, I also had another feeling, which was a little bit of frustration. And and the source of my frustration was this. Why did somebody else get $3,500 and I got zero? Right, Even though I knew I'd be able to pay for my tuition without that scholarship, I still wondered why did somebody else get so much and I got nothing? Maybe you've had that feeling at some point in your life. Why did my neighbor get that car? Why did my coworker get that house? How did those people send their kids to that school and I'm struggling to pay the bills? We've all had that feeling, right? And let's put a name to it. That feeling is called discontent. It's when I look at what I have, and then I look at what somebody else has, and I say, I don't have enough. I want what someone else has been given. I don't have enough, and I don't trust God to provide for my needs, I don't have enough, and I'm not sure that God is good enough to take care of me. I'm not sure that God is strong enough to take care of me. And so if we're not careful, this type of discontent can root itself into our heart and grow into this little plant of bitterness that we carry around with us. And here's the danger of discontent. The danger of discontent. Is that the more I believe I am owed more, the less I trust God to give me what I need. And the less I am willing to open up my hands and give to the work of the gospel or give to those who might be in greater need than I am. And yet if we're we're honest, we all have those moments of discontent. As we look at Philippians four ten through 23, as Paul closes out the book of Philippians, let me remind us again, the overarching concept of the book of Philippians is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the reality that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, the good news of Jesus Christ is worth pouring out our lives for. Right, That there's, there's no greater investment that you could make than the gospel. There's no greater investment you can make with your time, with your talents, and with your money than the spreading of the gospel, than the worship of God because of the gospel, that the gospel is worth pouring out our lives. And if you remember, the book of Philippians really originally was a thank you note to this church in Philippi because as Paul was in prison... They had sent a gift, a financial gift, to provide for his needs. So the book is sort of, it's book ended with a thank you at the front and a thank you at the back. And right here, he closes with a thank you, but he takes the opportunity in the midst of this thank you. He says, thank you for your gift. And by the way, I want to say a few things as I close about the relationship between contentment and our trust in God. I want to say a few things as the book closes about the relationship we have with our money and the relationship we have with God. Because there's a connection. As we close out the book then, here's what Paul is going to say to us. Our relationship with money reflects our relationship with God. The way we think about our money reflects the way we think about God. The way we use our money reflects the way we worship and trust or lack trust in God. It's one of the most powerful realities that we see in the book of Philippians and maybe the most uncomfortable. That the way we use our money and our resources reflects our relationship with With God. So that as Paul walks through Philippians 4 10 to 23, here's what he's going to say is that when we are able to get to a place of contentment with what God has given, then we can get to a spot where our money and our stuff doesn't control us, but instead it is a resource to use for the sake of God's kingdom. And I think there are some difficult questions that Philippians 4 is going to ask us to ponder. Let me, let me share a couple of these questions before we dive into the passage. First one is this, no matter how much or how little we have, will we choose contentment? What does contentment mean? Contentment simply means, I trust that God has given me enough. As you look at 1 Timothy chapter six, Paul says, hey, if we've got food and covering, that is, you've got the basics of life taken care of. He says, with these, we can be content. I'm going to take a guess in this room that everybody in this room has the basics covered, right? Because you're here and you're wearing clothes. And I'm going to guess that you either ate breakfast or maybe if you chose not to eat breakfast, you will eat something in the place where you live later today. So we have the basics covered. So for us, the question becomes, no matter how much or how little God provides, Will we choose to say it is enough and be content? Secondly, second question is this, no matter how much or how little we have, will we choose to give generously? Will we choose to say that the money no longer controls my heart, but I wanna pour out my life for the sake of the gospel and pour out my resources for the sake of the gospel, no matter how much or how little we have What Paul is going to get at in this passage is it's not the amount of money that we have that determines our spiritual life, but it's the attitude we take toward God. Do we trust Him? Do we believe Him? And are we willing to give of our resources on behalf of His kingdom? Will we choose contentment? Will we give generously? Look with me at Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's the first thing that Paul tells us from this passage. It's this, contentment brings freedom. Now, to set up the situation, again, a reminder, Paul was in prison, probably in Rome. At this point, he was probably under house arrest, Now, in in the ancient Roman world, if you were under house arrest, it wasn't like jail is today, where if you go to jail, the government pays for your shelter and your food and your clothing, limited as it may be, your basics are covered. In the Roman world, a prisoner who was under house arrest was actually responsible for his own expenses, to add insult to injury. You're in jail, but you got to pay for the house. You got to pay for your food. You have to meet your own needs. Now, th- what made that difficult, of course, was you have no way of making money. So you were reliant on those who would send you money to provide. So what had happened was when Paul went to jail, the Philippian church, out of love for Jesus, love for Paul's ministry and love for Paul, had sent him some kind of a financial gift to alleviate his financial needs while he was in jail. So he writes and he says, I'm really grateful for the gift, but he says, I want to tell you something. I am not coming from a place of lacking or a place of want, Right? He says, Look, I've learned the secret. I can be content whether I have a lot, if I've got an abundance, or whether I've got a little. I will be content. Right? Now, Paul is speaking literally from a place where if he does not receive financial resources, he might skip some meals. But he says, I've learned the secret. I can be content in whatever circumstance God has placed me. I think for us, all too often, we believe the lie that contentment depends upon how much we have. When in reality, contentment depends upon our relationship with the Lord. Some of you will remember several years ago there was a series of ads. Uh, You may remember these guys right here. Uh, This is the Mac and PC ads that were on for years and years. There were dozens of these ads, and you'll remember the premise of the ad. They were they were ads for the Apple Mac computers. The guy on the right represented Mac, and the guy on the left, the more formal guy, the stodgy guy, represented Mr. PC, right? And the the idea of the ads was, if you have a Mac, Macs are cool, Macs have features, PCs don't, Macs don't break down, they're just better across the board, right? So PC was kind of formal, stodgy, but he was also bumbling, he couldn't do a lot of stuff. And these were amazingly effective ads. And in fact, when these ads first came on, I had a PC. Now I have a Mac, right? And what was interesting was I I was, I was working off of a computer that, you know, it worked, but I thought it's not quite as, as good as I would like it to be. And I know that a Mac costs, I don't know, a lot more than that PC, Right, but what happens is, is, is you see something like this and you go, wait a second, even though what I have works, it's not enough. And then I would be at meetings and I would look over and the other pastors had Macs and I had a PC and I began, I began to, to, to hate that computer because it wasn't good enough. And so my eyes led to discontent, right? Did I have what I needed? Sure, technically, yes, it worked. But I began to believe I needed something more. I think all too often what happens to us is this. When we, when we first receive some sort of, uh, of financial provision, whether it's a house or a car, or we finally have a salary where we can pay our bills, we're so grateful Right? And I don't know how many of you, when you got your first real job after college, you saw that salary and what happened? You thought, how will I ever spend $32,000 a year? I'm rolling in money. How long did it take before you looked over and saw somebody making 50 or 75 and suddenly yours wasn't enough? And it began to feel like you weren't sufficiently provided for. And so you get to the next level and the next level. And just over the next hill, there's always the illusion that if I can get a little bit more, I will be content. But that contentment is never found in the abundance of your possessions or the salary that comes into your bank account. There's statistical research behind this, in fact, saying that you know what, people do generally uh, feel happier up to a point with more money, up to a point of about $75,000 a year, people tend to get happier. What they found is that point is roughly the point at which most people are able to pay their bills, pay the mortgage, get food, get clothes, and they can afford a few extras. They can go to the movies once in a while, right? But they find that above that threshold, money doesn't make you any happier. Whether you make $75,000 or $200,000, or half a million. But I don't know anybody when offered a raise that tends to say, no, you know what? I'm good. I've got enough. Because it's never enough. But what does Paul say? I've learned the secret of being content in abundance or being content with a lack. But if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. I think it's one of the the largest challenges of our American culture. This is why most Americans are in debt, many deep in debt. Forty percent of Americans spend more than they earn every month. The average credit card debt is over $6,000 because we are slaves to our discontent. You may say, you know what, I don't don't really have a lot of debt, right? I, I spend less than I earn. I make plenty but I think there may be other ways in which this discontentment works itself out in our lives. So you say, you know what? I spend less than I earn, but you begin to work more and more and more hours every week to increase or maintain that standard of living to the neglect of your walk with the Lord or the neglect of your family. Or perhaps you begin to hoard. I don't just need a safe and comfortable retirement. I need a big retirement. I need to know that no matter what happens, I will always have the money to pay for it so that I can look down like the man in the parable that Jesus told who said, I've got goods laid up for many years. I can eat, drink, and be merry. And so we allow discontent to control our hearts. And as a result, we're not free, but instead we're enslaved to what we own. Think about how our stuff and our money can own us. If you are a homeowner in this room, I want you to think back to the very first time you had your very first home and you went out to mow the lawn. I have a picture that my wife took the very first time I mowed the lawn with my new cherry red push lawnmower on our brand new yard. I was so happy to have a lawn that I could mow. But nobody takes pictures of me mowing anymore. (laughs) But I have to do it or I have to pay someone to do it. Many of you had that first moment when something broke down, the air conditioner, and you picked up the phone and you thought, I'll call the landlord. You go, oh, that's me. What I own now has control over me. It happens in subtle ways. It happens in big ways. But here's what Paul says. If I'm content with whatever I have, a lot or a little, then I'm free. My stuff doesn't own me. My money doesn't own me. And I can trust in the Lord to provide for all of my needs. At the heart of contentment is the attitude that Paul expresses in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, which by the way, is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Let me just give a quick plug in the spring, first part of the spring, I'm going to do a series on some of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Uh, we probably won't come back to this one, Philippians four, because we're talking about it today. Philippians 4:13. we see it everywhere, perhaps most commonly at sporting events, right? And the, the idea is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can win this game. Because Jesus is on the Aggie side, right? (laughs) May or may not be objectively true, right? But (laughs) we toss that verse around all over the place. But actually what Paul is saying is something different and profoundly different from that. It's actually this, whether in the, the, the grand scheme of how much I have, whether I have a lot, whether I have a little, whether I am a winner or a loser in the world's economy, Christ strengthens me for contentment to do all that God has called me to do. Paul says that's the secret, that when I don't have a lot, I trust in God to meet my needs. I trust that God has a plan that is bigger than my life, and I can endure through the strength of Jesus Christ. That's contentment. And here's what happens is that contentment brings us freedom. And then when we are free from being owned by our possessions and money, we are free to give. And so contentment then leads to generosity. And generosity leads to a number of results that I want to talk about this morning. Generosity leads to a few results. Start uh, with me in verse 14. He says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once, for my needs. The first thing that generosity leads us to is to make an eternal impact in the world. Generosity leads to eternal impact. What is Paul saying? He's saying from the very first time you heard the gospel, you Philippians, you began to give toward my ministry because you recognized that there was nothing more important than investing your life in a person like Paul who was going to proclaim the good news. The Philippians learned that Jesus had died for their sins, that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins. We have the promise of eternal life. And the great news for the Philippians was this was not just for Jews to know God anymore, but for Gentiles as well. And so when they believed it, they said, we want the world to know it. So they began to give. And so Paul says, you've partnered with me in this ministry of the gospel from the very beginning says you're investing your money in something that's going to last. Several years ago, our family moved from one house to another house here in town. And when we moved to the house that we're currently in, the person who sold us the house was a widow, an elderly woman who had lived in the house for decades Her husband had passed away. She was now old and she was moving to an assisted living facility. And so she was selling this house. And as we walked in the house, we could tell how much love and care and money and investment had gone into this house. But then she was leaving. And I'm not suggesting that we never Purchase things for our home that bring us joy. But I am suggesting this. I'm saying that eventually we need to recognize the day's gonna come where either we will die or we'll leave that house or it won't be there anymore. It's temporary. And Paul says, when you invest in the gospel though, you're investing in something that will last forever. In the lives of men and women, who will worship around the throne of God for eternity. So that when we're, when we're content, we're free to give, and that leads us to be able to make an eternal impact. Now, when we were back in the spring, we talked about this concept a lot as we talked about our Every Knee Initiative. You may remember in our Every Knee Initiative, we talked about how as a church, our goal is that, that all of us, every single one of us, experiences the joy of giving all that we have and all that we are to Jesus. That is our our homes, our cars, our money, whatever it is, we recognize it belongs to Jesus Christ. And so we use it in his service. If you have a house, you use it in his service. If you have a car, you use it in his service. If you have money to give, you give it for the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, and you'll remember back in the spring, in fact, this congregation, along with our other campuses, uh, pledged $22 million between 2017 and 2018, I forgot what year it is, 2018-2020 to this initiative, Right? We're six months in and we've seen 4.6 million of that 22 million already come in. You may remember that the goal behind that was not simply to build a building, although Creekside facility was part of it. But there were also, there were also plans eventually to plant other churches in the United States, plant other churches around the world, and to continue to do the ministry God has called us to do. All right, so that when we talk about giving, we are not simply talking about physical resources, although we need physical resources to do our ministry, but we're also talking about how we invest in the ability of this church and the missionaries this church supports to have an impact here and around the world for the good news of Jesus Christ. All right, so as we close Philippians, as Paul talks about this topic, and maybe this morning, it's a good opportunity even for you to re- reevaluate where are you in relation to your giving to this church? Where are you in relationship to your giving to missionaries, in your relationship to giving to charities where there are men and women and needs that need to be met? Because generosity leads to the ability to make an eternal impact in the lives of men and women. Generosity not only leads to an eternal impact. Secondly, generosity leads us to eternal reward. I love verse 17, where Paul says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. I love that because Paul is saying, actually, when you give to the gospel, you are not giving primarily to some other person or organization. He says, you're actually depositing money in your own account. Now think about that for a minute. Paul's saying, what I really want for you more than anything is that when you give, you get the joy of giving, you get the joy of partnering in the gospel, but you also know that you are building up an account. So one day when you stand before Jesus Christ and your life is evaluated, you have the opportunity to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You used what I gave you to impact the world. You used what I gave you so that other people now heard the good news of Jesus Christ and are joining us in eternity to worship him. Many of you, maybe most of you, have some kind of a retirement account somewhere. Maybe you have an IRA, maybe you have a 401k, whatever it may be monthly, quarterly, yearly. At some point, you put money into that account for your future retirement. Now, if you think about it, really from a pragmatic point of view, not only are there few people generally in the world who have that privilege, but also from a pragmatic point of view, you could make the case that, hey, that's really wasted money, right? You could use that money for something else. You could use that money to buy a car. You could use that money to buy a bigger house. You could use that money for vacations now. So, wh- so why are you putting it away in that account? Well, here's, here's fundamentally what you're thinking. You're thinking, I am paying future me, right? That's what you're doing. I'm putting money in here to pay future me. And maybe one day future me will build a time machine and come back and thank current me. <coughs> thank you for investing in future me. Current me, right? You're putting money into that person's account, so you don't spend it now. You're investing in the future. All Paul is saying is this: when we invest in the work of the kingdom of God, we're investing in a future that goes way beyond even our retirement, but into eternity. And he says, "I want the gift that's going, or the credit that's going to increase to your." account, that you're sending money ahead for the sake of the kingdom of God, because you can't take it along with you when you die. And so you have the opportunity to impact eternity. You have the opportunity to receive eternal reward. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, your eternity is secure Giving of your money is not going to make you any more or less likely to go to heaven. That was decided when you believed in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. But the scripture says not only does God give us eternal life as a free gift, he also gives us the opportunity to participate in his work. And then out of his grace, he rewards us for participating in his work. And so the scripture describes those rewards at various times as crowns. They're gifts of God's grace to say, well done, well done. And Paul says, that's what I want for you. That when you stand before Jesus, you have credit in that account. To hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Generosity leads to eternal impact, leads to eternal reward. And thirdly, to abundant provision. Read verses 18 to 20. He says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, I, this section is going to take a little bit of explanation because on the surface, it seems like what Paul is saying is if you give, God promises to give you more, right? And there are actually, uh, there are strains of theology where people say that. So, so th- there is a prosperity theology that says, if I give a dollar, God will give me 10. So let me just uh, read a couple of quotes. This is from uh, Rod Parsley, the leader of the World Harvest Church. He says, some of you better get ready to drive around in neighborhoods you never thought you'd be able to afford to live in. Some of you better go down to that Lexus and Mercedes dealership and just sit down in one of those things with all that leather all over it. And when they say, what are you doing? Just say, well, I'm just feeling out what my father is going to give me. Okay, no, that's not what this passage is saying. The scripture never promises that if we give, God is going to make us wealthy. Here's what Paul is getting at though. When we open up our hands and we say, God, I trust you with all you've provided for me. I choose contentment. I choose generosity. He says, God will meet your needs. What does that mean? That as long as he wants you to serve him and as much as he wants you to give, he will provide. I strongly believe nobody who chooses to give faithfully and wisely to God's work is going going to fail in that task because they gave, right? Because they gave. Now, let me be clear. Again, there's no biblical promise that Christians don't die. There's no biblical promise that Christians aren't poor. There's no biblical promise that Christians don't suffer. Christians experience all of those things. But what Paul is saying is this that everything in the universe belongs to God. So that when you give, there's not a lack of provision on God's end. And for as long as God wants you to serve him and give, God will provide. All right, we've seen this, my family has seen this play out in our lives in some very tangible ways over the years. A few years ago, we were at an event and there, there was a, a There was a small speech, it was a concert or something. There was a small speech about a particular opportunity to give to some men and women who needed gifts. Right? It was a a human trafficking organization. And so, so our family prayed about it and we said, you know, we think we can make this work. We're not exactly sure quite where the money's gonna come from in order to make it for the next year to give to this, but we trust that the Lord is leading us. And so we committed what we felt was a a wise, responsible amount, but it was a stretch. And then the very next day, literally the very next day in our mailbox, we received a gift for the amount that we had decided to give for the next year. Now that hasn't always happened in every case. And, and to my chagrin, the gift was not larger than we needed either. But it was enough. Because God provided for our needs. And we don't know how or when or in what way God will do that. But what Paul says is when you choose to open up your hands, you can trust that God isn't going to go and just drop you. But he provides for the needs of his people. Matthew chapter 6, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Here's the reality. Unless Jesus comes back first, We are going to die, right? So there, there is no promise that we will live forever. There is no promise we will always have every possible physical need met. But the promise is this, you seek first the kingdom of God with all you are and all you have, and God will take care of you. And guess what? On the day that you and I die, we immediately go into his presence where all of our needs are provided for forever and ever. So that the one who trusts in God will never lack for what they need. So Paul says, I'm confident he will meet your needs. You don't have to be afraid because fear leads us to greed and discontent, but trust leads us to contentment and generosity. So again, as we, as we close out this morning, contentment brings us freedom. Generosity leads to eternal impact, eternal reward, abundant provision. As we said when we started, our relationship with money reflects our relationship with God. Our relationship with money reflects our relationship with God. Will we choose contentment? Will we choose generosity? We're gonna celebrate communion as we close this morning. So there's one other phrase in this passage that I want to point out as the men go back and get ready for communion. Notice that Paul, he says, the gift that they gave was a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Here's the other point that I want to make. Our generosity is an act of worship. It's a fragrant aroma to God. Generosity in the scripture, giving in the scripture is consistently viewed as part of our worship. It's not just that we sing. It's not just that we pray. It's not just that we read the scripture. It's not just that we obey. But giving is viewed as an act of worship. And in fact, in the Old Testament, it was one of the primary ways that the people of Israel worshiped when they brought animals from their flock to offer to God. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ, when we give, we know we are worshiping the one who gave everything to us, who gave his life and rose again so that we can have life. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know God through Jesus Christ, the message of the morning is not for you to start giving your money to this church but instead first to accept the gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ to say, I trust in Jesus Christ alone to forgive all of my sin and to provide me with eternal life. So as communion comes around, if that's you this morning, if you say, I'm not sure I have ever trusted in Jesus, feel free to let the elements pass and take this opportunity to say, God, I want to trust in you and I want to trust in your son, Jesus. For those who know Jesus Christ, as the elements pass this morning and as we partake of communion, let's remind ourselves of all that Jesus gave and then say, God, I want to worship you with my life, with my abilities, with my time, and with my money. With all I have, I want to worship you. So let's do that as the elements come around. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we are grateful, grateful above all, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we've studied the book of Philippians, we are in awe of all that Jesus did to secure our salvation. Father, we pray that our lives would be a living offering to you. Father, we pray this week that we would honor and worship you with all that we have and all that we are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, turn his face toward you and give you peace. Have a wonderful week.